Are you ready to take your screenwriting career to the next level? If you're a new or aspiring screenwriter who feels lost or stuck in your career, the Working Writer School is here to teach you what writing courses don't. Former student Dylan Evans said, There are a ton of writing classes out there, but this course helped me work through the stuff that I couldn't find anywhere else. I feel more prepared and more knowledgeable to take on the next phase of my writing career. Writer Nicole Bennett said, After taking this course, I have a clear framework for the mindset, productivity, networking, and financial management skills needed for longevity in this industry. And Jay Burlingham calls this course the map. This course has given me a map that I will return to again and again as I move forward in my career as a writer. Use code MMIH for 10% off from now until January 31st and go to theworkingwriter.com. That's theworking, W-E-R-K-I-N-G, writer.com to sign up today. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm R. Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital and DVD, and it's out on Tubi now, too. So, if you haven't seen it and you don't like spending money for things, watch it on Tubi. That would be fantastic. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer. It's made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently working on, again, I I hate this part of the introduction. (laughs) I'll just say that. More, No more information given. I'm working on a certain amount and who knows what's going to get made. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome Academy Award winning writer director Tom Shulman, the prolific writer behind films such as Dead Poet Society. What about Bob? And of course, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh, we talk about directing his first feature film, Double Down South since his directorial debut back in the late 1990s, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. After that, I ask Alric this week's question for the game. But first, Alric, how are you? Doing okay. I um, had a little bit of an intense parenting weekend. I tried to do potty training with my 18-month-year-old daughter. Yeah. Month-year-old doesn't work. 18-month-old daughter, and yeah, not good, bad. I think she's too young, that's my my defense, or we gave up too early. After three days, and there was no no signs of any kind of improvement or success of any kind. We were like, 18 months is, is pretty early, but I've heard that girls do take to it quicker, maybe, sometimes. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. I think we're going to wait two months and then maybe try again, but we're basically like... Get dedicated our whole holiday weekend to this. And my wife even started on Friday when I was working. So she did Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and nothing. And then we're like, yeah. you know what? We actually want to have a day off where we actually get to be with each other. So as a family and like hang out and do things and like leave the house. So we called it quits on Sunday night. And then Monday morning, we just had a regular day. So I think, totally okay. yeah, it was harder than I thought it was going to be. It was more stressful and harder than expected. But yeah, and then I got a little sick feeling yesterday. I'm feeling better today, but I don't know what that was about. But yeah, go Niners. It was great. Great. <laughs> the, the Niners did well. This household. This I'm not allowed to say that in this household. No. But I do support Bay Area sports. But what's the What's the team in this household? Sean despises any any San Francisco team, really. Why? Just any... <laughs> There's so many reasons. Probably part of it is from me being from the Bay Area. And so he's just like, I'm going to hate all your teams. But he just, he's like a Cowboys, Yankees, 
Green Bay Packers. Oh, so he's a Cowboys fan. Well, then of course he has to hate us because we're going to destroy you guys or his <laughs> guys on uh, next Saturday. It's going to be really depressing for all Cowboys fans. I am uh, supportive of all teams. Go sports. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't care. I, w- I will say that they the Cowboys played a pretty good game yesterday. Yeah, but I feel you bad know, for that the, kicker. That ki- that was oh my sad. God. I feel bad for that kicker. You're like, I, something's in your head, right? Like we'll, something's we'll see, going on. We'll see what happens. I mean, yeah, it's like it's your totally... Just, you know, it's all mental, you know, yeah, it's just yeah, this yeah. mental thing. Oh, his face after that fourth kick, you could just see like he's just going to beat himself up for the next like year, year, I think. Yeah. Well, luckily it didn't happen in a game where it mattered. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's a really good point. If there's any time to have a meltdown like that, it's when it doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Which, you know, so that's one thing I'm, I'm curious, like, cause at first I read something that they were like, oh yeah, we're going to keep him in for next week like we're gonna give him what he needs and make sure he's ready and then i read something from the owner was like we're gonna reevaluate our kicker situation <laughs> it's like well, oh, i was God. thinking like after three why haven't you replaced the kicker for that game you know why haven't you brought in a backup after three fails yeah three? I, don't, I don't really know the situation with backups like do they just have backup kickers for every team or they're like two kickers know. Well, Sean was saying that that a kicker would be the least likely, like you would least likely have a backup for a kicker because they're used so sparingly and because they're not like physically yeah. in conflict with other players. But I would assume that if you have a multi-billion dollar industry with a multi-million dollar team, that you would have a backup kicker. Like that just you'd wouldn't think. make sense to me, but you'd think. whatever. About movie stuff, <laughs> I found out that, my, that the alternate was on Tubi. I was, you know, thought I would be notified once that happened happened but no. i was not you don't get it just ha- it just happened and i so i i had asked i was like hey when are we going to be on tubi and then the response was two days later we're on tubi now <laughs> so like, okay great so yeah i still haven't really done a big push alok what a gentleman he yeah. did a little promotion for us from one br I, which yeah. i yeah then tweeted <laughs> again but i haven't really done more than that so i i, I have to like settle down this week and do a facebook post about how the movie's on Tubi and, you know, the successes and all that. And then maybe run an Instagram, not an Instagram ad, a Facebook ad. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I have dreams of writing this script. I've been thinking about this script that it's in my head a lot lately. So I really want to write it. I just don't know when I'll do this thing of writing at some point. Uh, and then I'm just in the waiting game on that movie I've been talking about this whole time. So I'm just waiting. You know, fingers crossed. Hope it all works out well. Who knows? We'll see. But yeah, Liz, what's up? What's going on in your world? Honest, you, your description of potty training took me back to several months ago. I think I talked about <laughs> it on the show where you're just like, you're because at least for us, we were told he wasn't allowed to wear any underwear and he just yes. has to walk around naked, right? Yeah. So you're just like anticipating at all moments, right? You're just like ready to jump up. I remember I even like notified my downstairs neighbor because, you know, it, very thin walls over here. And I was just like, I'm just so sorry, like that the whole weekend's just going to be chaos for you. And she was so sweet about it. But like, you don't think... <laughs> You know, think about like, what about your downstairs neighbor during potty training? But don't forget to support us on Patreon. Glassiest segue ever. Patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. It is the way to keep the show going. You're funding great interviews, lovely support of the indie film community. And we want to wish a happy, happy birthday to Chris Scott for becoming one of our Patreon patrons. Happy birthday, Chris. Thank you for for joining. For everyone else, don't forget to check out jambox.io, which is a royalty 
royalty-free music and SFX company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, global brands like DJI. They offer customized plans to fit your needs. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Tom Shulman. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Give us the elevator pitch for your film, Double Down South. It takes place in a, a rundown plantation house in rural Georgia, where three Nicks run a, a high-risk um, gambling sort of casino where the game of Keno is played, which is a specific kind of pool that's been around for, was around for about 100 years, involves a lot of doubling up of bets, and an uh, unwitting player can get caught in s- losing some big money. And, and into that world comes the character of Diana, who wants to be a great keynote player and make a lot of money. And Nick is the one Nick anyway, the Nick played by Kim Coates, who runs the place, is enamored of her and decides to take her in. Mm-hmm. Danger ensues. <laughs> How many days was the shoot? 22. What was the rough budget, if you can say? My producers have asked me not to mention the budget except to say we were a tier zero movie. If you know what that <laughs> okay. Is. Which is an an unfortunate budget range, at least the way the name of it. Well, we always. What are the tiers? It's like zero is actually a tier, right? So that's the lowest tier that you can be. (laughs) I think so. I hope so. I think that what happened is the studios and the, the started figuring out, okay, we need some low budget tiers. So they started with tier one through tier three. And then somebody came along and said, the, the budget floor for or ceiling for, for tier one is too high. So we need something below that. So they only had tier zero left. And they may, they may get to tier double zero because they need to. <laughs> that's, that's where I will be. Yeah. But we understand that what's at risk for sharing too much information. Can you color it any way with like it's under a million, it's under half a million, anything that's like a safe range for yourself? It's under two and a half. Okay, that's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, tier one, dear Lord, 7.5 million. That's insane. (laughs) Yeah, tier tier one is is 2.75 million and above. Uh Okay. Yeah. And since those are union tiers, you know, you can get caught in the middle of a DGA tier versus an IATSE tier, and then suddenly... You know, you get bumped in the DGA tier and that puts you right right at the IATSE tier and you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're screwed. So it's it's you have to be really careful when, when you're moving around in that in that world. How did you come up with the idea for the film? When I was a kid, I used to go to a pool hall in Nashville where I grew up called 20th Century Pool Hall. And back in the corner, they played this game of Kino. And there was this very attractive woman who would come in every now and then seemingly fearless and not, you know, and, and kind of a, a tough character. And she would play Kino and we crowd down there. And, you know, I was 12, 13, 14 years old. We'd hope for a glance from her, which we never got. But once I decided to put a dollar down on the table and wait my turn. And when I started playing, I found out just how, how, you know, tough the game was because the guy that uh, owned the table said, I'll break. And he broke and he made a double because there's a double hole in the middle of a Kino board. And he said, okay, you owe me two bucks. I said, well, I only bet a dollar. He said, I just hit a double. You owe me two bucks. So I gave him two bucks and I moved to shoot. He said, well, it's still my turn. I don't, I don't stop shooting until I miss. So he re-racked, made another double. And he says, now you owe me four bucks. 
I said, I, I only have, and this was a lot of money back then. I only have $4 left. He said, well, give it to me, mine. And I said, okay. And I said, so if you should, and he said, still my shot. And I said, if you make another double, do I owe you eight bucks? He goes, you're smart, kid. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't have any more money on you. He goes, well, you got that watch you're wearing. I went, oh, my God. So fortunately, he missed that one, that double. It was my turn. And I got ready to shoot. Somebody said, you're aware of the fact that if you shoot and miss, it's going to be his turn again. And then this start could start all over. <laughs> and I went, oh. So I walked away and never got to shoot. So <laughs> that's, that's the way that game works. So, it, you know, learning how to play and play well can cost you a lot of money. So which eventually it did. But but I got pretty good at it. Certainly not not professional but and it stuck with me and that woman stuck with me and you know somewhere in the middle of the covid thing i just thought i've always wanted to write something about this and and the idea of what the, the story would be hit me and there 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 it went how long did you spend working on the film from coming up with the idea to it being released Let's see, it, we shot it almost a year after I wrote the script, or we finished shooting it a year after I wrote the script, and we're releasing it, you know, now in, in the film festivals. So I guess that's 18 months. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And compared to all the other projects you've done, how difficult was this one? It was easier in some ways because we found the financing fairly quickly. The financiers said, take the money, do the best you can with it. You get no more. We're not going up to tier one. But there are no huge casting mandates. We didn't have to have a major star. I mean, they prefer to get people with recognizable names, but they weren't expecting, you know, big box office stars. So, and, you know, it was because it takes place in one location, it was fairly easy to manage. But one of the hardest things was just finding the location, this, this rundown plantation. I was finding a house that we could take down to the level we needed to do and then not have to pay to restore it, which is what we found. We found a guy who was getting ready to demo the inside of his house. So he said, do whatever you want. You know, it's great. So we did. We didn't we didn't have to restore it. Well, let's jump off there because we never really <laughs> hear that finding money is easy like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that you're like, oh, I walked down the street and they just handed me a couple million dollars. But we also know that you're fancy schmancy. So was it your fancy schmanciness that that garnered or secured the budget? Or was it something else that we haven't mentioned yet? I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't think it's super fancy schmanciness. I mean, it's it felt <laughs> like the, they're you know, angel investors, they're people who've invested in mostly horror, low budget horror films, did okay. And I think, you know, the, this budget level was was reasonable for them. They recognized the movie wasn't or isn't a horror film, but a thriller. So that I think fit into a genre that they felt like they could do okay. And and since they had done well and they weren't they're not Hollywood people, you know, they they're they're in, in the the tech world. So but but not major players in that world. So they just, you know, quietly thought this this is you know we can, if we can make 10 15 20% on our investment that would be great because they're investing in a lot of things that don't do that well so and then movies always have that you know upside that possible you know through the roof thing so it seemed like a reasonable thing and also you know because they make a lot of money they get a write off if it fails you know so between the georgia tax credit and their write off it's it's i think they felt like it was 
pretty pretty good deal. And my my producer, one of my producers, Rick Wallace, found the money. You know, it, it was one of those things where the money actually arrived in the bank at, on time, and there we are. You know, so so how did you get connected with Rick? Was that just a long time collaborator that you've known for a long time, or like how did the because the finding a producer is really difficult too? Like how did that all come together? Rick and I have known each other since we went to a place called the Actors and Directors Lab back in the seventies, and we were both students there. I went into the more often to the feature world. He went off in the TV world. He was his first AD for Stephen Bochco's shows. And then Bochco recognized that Rick was talented and gave him a chance to direct. And within a couple of years, he was running Bochco's shows. So so he's he lived in that world his whole career. I've been in, in the feature world, and but we've always talked about doing something. And he retired from TV and thought and Moved up to Bellingham, Washington, and which is near Vancouver, where he was doing a lot of TV work. And, you know, there's a whole community of ex or filmmakers and ex filmmakers up there. So he, he enjoys that. And there are people hanging around that are saying, Hey, if you, if you find a good script or know of a good project, call me. And that's, that's how this. Investment. We're all yeah. moving there. We're, there's going to be a mass exodus to Bellingham <laughs> yeah, in yeah. Like the next two exactly. weeks. Yeah. Let's go deeper into the, I guess, what you see as the future of this film, right? Because you look at your CV and there's, you know, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Eight Heads and Duffel Bag. Like, what about Bob? Like, like some really massive movies. Mm-hmm. And then this movie's come to you and you have cast, but it's not, you know, it's not Angelina Jolie, right? It's like, it's meaningful cast, but it's not name, 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 name cast. Mm-hmm. So I work in distribution. So like our our perspective in distribution is like nothing hits, right? So right. I'm curious about the decision to do film festivals after trafficking in such a prolific and like real meaningful career in Hollywood. It feels like you're going indie right now. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about yeah. that? I mean, I, I think that the, you know, I, frankly, Hollywood movies stopped interesting me a long time ago. You know, I mean, I, I wrote my, I guess my first hit was Dead Poet Society. And it was not ever in my mind going to be a, a you know, a big Hollywood movie. Mm. And it seems like the indie world is the only place, you know, in, in the movie world anyway, maybe not for television, but in movies where I can, where the things I write belong. And it was also a chance to, to have more or less total freedom, you know, within a budget to make the movie the, the way I wanted to, as opposed to having, you know, the layers of executives on, on top of. And, you know, distribution wise, I think everybody knew we were just taking a chance that the movie works and that it somehow breaks out of the festival mode gets a sales agent makes you know makes the the investors their money back or more that's that's the hope but you know if if you're in distribution you know mgs are the the sort of the buzzwords for for actors and so forth so you know we don't have the mgs that would necessarily justify you know the budget we have but but you know so far we have we have a good sales agent who i think has ambitions for us to at least to do pretty well. So we'll see, you know, it's the crapshoot. <laughs> so what what I want to know, was curious about is like your, your break from credits. So, you know, in 2009, that's the last thing that you credited as writing. And then, you know, we're 2022 and then you're writing, directing, you know, this film. So yes. what was going on in that time? Was that just like taking a break? Did you work on a bunch of stuff that didn't get off the ground? Like talk to us about that, that period. You know, I spent almost four years trying to get a movie called Morgan Summit off the ground. My producer was Laura Ziskin, who was one 
the producers of What About Bob? And Laura, unfortunately, about a year into our, our process, diagnosed with breast cancer and, you know, got very, I mean, you know, it was a long, painful process. She started a wonderful organization called Stand Up to Cancer. And, mm-hmm. you know, and meanwhile, we had name actors attached and just went through a series of unfortunate studio, you know, turnarounds and so forth. So that by 2014, I gave up on that project. It's hard, looking back, it's hard to believe I spent that much time grinding on one thing, but I, I really believed in it. And it was, you know, we started pre-production twice. It just, you know, it's, and then I think I wrote a series in 2014 that didn't get made. And then another movie in 2017, which I'm hoping to make now. Also, we had financing. We were scouting locations and so forth, and then financing fell through. So it's been that kind of thing. Ever since I decided to direct, and I tried it once in the 90s, and I realized it just eats up, can eat up years of your time trying to get a movie off the ground versus when you're writing, you, you know, you can you can write a script in, in a few months. So gaps in my career were mostly gaps of, you know, okay, I'm not going to take any writing projects. I'm not going to, I'm going to focus on this thing and get it made. And in some, in some cases that didn't happen. Speaking of credits, it looks like just looking at, you know, IMDb, sometimes you're an EP, sometimes you're a writer, sometimes you're a director. Can you talk about that EP decision? Because it, to me, that's like an interesting, you know, you can never quite figure out why someone's being awarded an EP credit. And I'd yeah. be curious, what are you contributing to the script? Are you contributing? Tell me, tell us. Well, in the case of Indecent Proposal, which I think is my first EP, I bought the book, sold it to, to Paramount and really felt like it should have a, a, a woman writing it. So I, we found Amy Holden Jones. She wrote the script at a particular moment when I was going to be the, one of the, the producers on the movie, but Sherry Lansing came aboard and Sherry wanted to have sole producer credit. So, you know, I stayed with the project, but I took EP credit and, you know, it was, that was fine because I don't really have any ambitions to be a producer. I just wanted to see that, that thing get made. With, with me, myself and Irene, I tried to help the Fairley brothers get that going for a couple of years and maybe Five or six years later, they called me and said, hey, we're going to get it going. We want you to produce. And I said, guys, I haven't worked on this project in years. Go with God, you know, make it. They said, no, we're not doing it unless you're a producer on it, at least with the name, we're not doing it. And, you know, there's, they're wonderful guys. So I finally just said, okay. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> And then I can't remember what else I've been AP on, but but it's generally for me, a, a, you know, it's a creative position. You know, I throw in my two cents about what the story should be and any kind of script stuff or, you know, daily comments on dailies, et cetera. But it's, it's, it's not the hard work of being the, the sole producer on a movie. So, so during that period when like you had all these stops and starts, like were you getting paid on these projects to like actually put food on the table or did you have to do other jobs in between or were you able to just make this happen somehow through that time? A little bit of both. I mean, the projects that don't get made, you don't, you know, don't make enough money to, to live on. But while those were happening, I was doing rewrites on other projects, you know, which I grew to hate, you know, doing that process. It just feels 
you know, like it's not something that's not mine to begin with. I just, I feel bad tinkering with unless it's just a disaster. And if it's a disaster, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of, you know, so I, it, it just, and when you're trying to direct something else, the last thing you want is to get heavily involved in something that's going to take you away for several months. So yeah, but yes, working on other other projects. I'm trying to form, I usually have like these half cooked questions. I feel like you've experienced like some of the highest highs and then some of not lowest lows actually, but some of these like like what the presumption of what Hollywood is like. It feels like you're confirming it in this conversation. Oh like yeah, it's yeah. St- what is it like? Um, movie making through God, what does that come? Just like too many cooks in the kish- kitchen weighing in. Oh yeah, on a script on a project that there seems to be like these sharks swimming in these waters people hungry for power hungry for control like i'm just sensing like my own presumptions of the darker side of hollywood you may have trafficked in oh yeah totally you can't you can't avoid it i mean it's you know it's hollywood is full of very ambitious people producers only get paid really when their movie gets made they make a small amount of money for development so any kinds of you know changes that come down the pike they, they rarely want to stand up and say no, because if they do, they, they risk the movie not getting made. And at that point, they're not going to make, you know, their million or two million bucks or whatever. You know, so they need to get movies made to live. They need them to be made well to keep a career going. But a lot of times the notes that come down from the studios, you know, having to do with casting or anything else are a disaster. And, you know, if the producer won't fight it, if there's nobody fighting it, you know, the movie is already off the rails and going in the wrong direction. And, you know, it's so that that's you're constantly fighting that. That's that. And you've ex- you experienced like you did a lot of studio films is what I'm I'm kind of glomming on to. Yeah, and then it's like, yeah. but then there's this vantage point you have right now, which is like, think of the freedom I have now. Did you have designs to kind of branch outside of the system earlier? Or is this something you've only come into recently? You know, back in when I was coming up, there was a concept, I think, articulated by one of my agents best called a walking movie. That's a, any one person in Hollywood who just saying, I want to do that, they get to do it. It can be a director. It's often most often a star, you know, but sometimes a writer. But 99% of the time, it's a director and or a star. And since I'm not an actor, it was always my ambition to be a walking movie, just to be the person who, you know, <laughs> it sounds so grandiose, but the person who just could, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. You know, so, you know, mostly I I wrote originals and wanted to do those and just thought if I can get myself to the position where I can just do that, that's that's what I want to do. And, you know, never really got there. You know, there was a moment in time after Dead Poets Society when I was there. But, you know, just the movies I chose to direct in that time frame just didn't didn't get made another two or three years of tortured development, you know. So, you know, it just can't say it's been fun, but it is. So I want to talk about Eight Heads of the Duffel Bag. So, you know, that was your first feature as a director, writer, director. What was that like? Like, you know, was that the your top pick movie to direct? Or you mentioned that there was other projects maybe before that that had stopped yeah. and started. And yeah. maybe just tell us how it led to that project and then like kind of the aftermath of what happened after the movie was done. Yeah, I, I think I, I had been working on a script that I wrote at Universal that that we spent almost two years 
trying to cast and get the budget to a reasonable place where they would say yes. And I knew what the budget was. And when we finally got the budget there, the head of the studio greenlit the movie on Friday and called me on Monday and said, I still don't believe this budget, even though it's on paper. So we got to roll up our sleeves. And at that point, I just went, enough. This is never going to happen there. So I took a rewrite, a job doing a, a, a rewrite. It turned out to be almost an impossible adaptation. And I was every day at lunch. It was during the OJ trial. So every day at lunch, I was watching the court TV and just the wrap up of what had been going on at trial just to give myself a break from this miserable rewrite. And, <laughs> and on the day that they talked about someone, OJ, leaving his the the murder implements in a bag on at the airport in LA at LAX suddenly the idea occurred to me you know that I would be the person that would somehow pick up the wrong bag and arrive at my destination with you know bloody knives or whatever and then I thought well that's uh, okay but you know what if it were something worse you know and then the idea of of a head in the bag came to me and then I thought well one head is eh, but eight heads kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I called my wife and I said, I'm not coming home tonight. I'm going to do my rewrite and then I'm going to write this script. And I wrote it that night and uh, <laughs> and sent it to my agent over the weekend and, and just for his, his input. But then on Monday, he called me and said, a producer whose name I won't mention at Paramount has read this and wants to make a deal. And I said, what do you mean? I just gave it, what are you talking, you, you weren't <laughs> supposed to give that to somebody. And he said, well, he's got somebody here at our agency that slips him stuff. So I went and we met and decided to make the movie. And, you know, I started doing rewrites and then that got delayed and delayed and delayed. But finally, the delays were starting to feel like the same kind of delays that had happened on the, the prior project. And then that producer took another job and said, it's going to be another year before I can be on the set with you with this. And I said, that that can't happen. I just, I have to leave you and go somewhere else. So I ended up with the movie Left Paramount, went to Orion Pictures, which had just reestablished itself, and we made the movie. But there, it, it felt, you know, there was some casting issues that, that I didn't agree with, but I had been in a process for, you know, years where I was hard-headed and not agreeing to casting and it was delaying the movie and i finally thought some somebody said can once you decide that you might be wrong and just accept the consensus of all the rest of us who think this would be a great choice and i'm like i don't know okay maybe because otherwise you're not making the movie so i just decided all right let's uh, let's to hell with it and you know i i said to one of the producers a year from now we're going to sit in a screening room and we're going to be looking at this piece of casting and we're going to agree that since we cast this out of order we fucked up the movie and he said that's bullshit and a year later he said to me yeah you're right so you know and i can't i don't want to go into the details of who but but it was just one of those decisions that once you cast someone you have to shape the whole movie around them and if if you're going to do that it better be your lead if it's a second character secondary character you're now casting your lead to fit a secondary case it's, it's crazy so you know we made it and it, during the time that two weeks before the movie came was released i got a call from the head of marketing at orion saying said i'm really sorry i've got something to be sorry for i can't tell you what it is 
but I just want you to know I'm sorry. So what what are you talking about? I said I can't tell you. Well, what happened was that MGM had bought Orion and had just hacked the the advertising budget of all the projects, including Eight Heads. So we were we reduced the number of theaters we were released in. The, the advertising budget went from thirty million to six, and it just wow. you know fell like a stone. So my agent, I remember answering the phone at like five o'clock in the morning because I had gone to Westwood to see the movie and the theater was full and the audience was enjoying it. And I went home and thinking, okay, this is good. 5.30 in the morning, my phone rings. My ex-agent says, Tom. And I said, yeah. He goes, five years. I said, what? Five years. That's how long you're going to be in director's jail for this. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? And he told me the grosses. And I went, oh, boy. So, you know, that's 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 Hollywood. So <laughs> For what it's worth, like, this is a very well-known movie. Like, I, may, you're talking about it like the, theatrically. It didn't do what it should have. But like. It certainly didn't. No. Ulrich, me and. and and Eric, we saw the email come in from the publicist and we're like, eight heads in a duffel bag? Yes, we want to talk to him. <laughs> like, we, all three of us were like, absolutely, this is going to be great. Yeah, so, like, well. I, I don't know. I think it has a good reputation. And that is the second mention of director jail that we've heard on this show. We talked to another director who was was put in director jail <laughs> by his own. I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether to ask about director jail or ask about... I'm going to move director on. Jail. Director jail. Director jail. Okay, fine. fine, fine. <laughs> well, did, what, does it, is it real? I've spent a lot of time there. I'm an expert. But, did, yeah. is it, did it happen? Is it a real thing? Is it just a oh, feeling yeah. of isolation or what is it for you? Well, what, I mean, first of all, you know, the opposite is if, if your first movie in Hollywood is a success, you basically have a career for the rest of your life. You know, Robert Altman is probably the best example of that. You know, I think MASH was his first or second movie. Huge success. And he could make good movies, but movies that did not perform at the box office for the rest of his life. He made 30 or 40 of them. And people were just always happy to give him money because, uh, you know, a, a, a once been is a good thing in Hollywood. A has been is a good thing in Hollywood, but a never been is a bad thing in Hollywood. So if you've directed one movie that bombed, you are a never been. And that's very hard to convince someone, you know, that somehow it, the magic leaves you, you know, <laughs> you're just you're done. So, you know, it, it becomes the same problem as before. You have to write something that they want to make so badly that they'll, you know, hold their nose or close their eyes or, you know, hum while they move around and let you direct just on the off chance that maybe you'll do a decent job and, and the thing will work. So, and to make that happen, you have to find casting first. So you go from a, a person whose scripts are out there, you know, casts are trying to be in it versus a script where you're trying, you have to get a star. And once you get a star, then you're back in, you know, you're out of jail and you're ready to go because that's, that's the game. But it wasn't five years. It was more than five years. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I mean, I, I, I got a chance to direct about, well, I get about almost 10 years later. That's how long it took me to come up with a script that that I could find a star to want to do. That that I, I mean, I I guess Welcome to Mooseport had stars in it, but I never put myself in line to direct that. Holy Man, I was in line to direct, but it came. It, we we were doing it right after Eight Heads, so I was. The studio was basically saying, "You're going to do it with this actor, this actor, this actor. You're not going to do it." Whereas before that, I'd been trying to get it made, and it was at least had the you know they weren't going to fire me for not accepting one of the stars they wanted. So it just becomes very hard. So, but you get out of 
You get out of director's jail by finding a, a project that a star wants to make with you directing. So, you know, you've written all these movies and directed two now. When you directed Eight Heads, was it like, did you kind of catch the bug for directing? Or like, yeah, this is really, this is where it's at. Like, I want to be doing this. And then, you know, kind of followed that later on. Or was it something that you always knew you wanted to do even before Eight Heads? Yes, yes. I started writing defensively, started writing because I wanted to direct and wanted didn't have any leverage to, to make that happen. So I figured the best thing to do would be find a project. I couldn't afford to buy a book or anything like that. So write something that, that, that you know, has that they want to do badly enough that they'll take that risk to let you direct it. Mm-hmm. Took a while, took a while. I'm curious about the trends or the the motifs in your work, because when you look at it, like from a bird's eye view, I'm like, well, these are pretty disparately different projects. Mm -hmm. But can you identify a common thread between them? And is it whimsy? Is it kind of like a certain bite to them? Or or are they always just kind of random parts of of you and your character? I I think it's I always start a script, at least of my own. I'm interested in a character and the character generates a story. And then that's so and generally, I think I'm attracted to characters who are, you know, are eccentric and 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 sort of bolder than than other people somehow. You know, if I look at the teacher in Dead Poet Society or, you know, but Eight Heads was was a plot driven idea, you know. So that's but but mostly I think it's been character driven. And the stuff I've been trying to get made since Eight Heads has all been a very strong central character with a a, a a very specific agenda you know so and and even even double down south it was about that woman in that pool hall that that was that was what you know the whole movie came from her so now that you've done it twice and you've gone through this experience kind of you know in more of a position of power i guess without a studio you know like you have a kind of more creative control and you don't have to answer to executives or anything do you feel like that was like the experience you were looking for as a director or was it kind of like similar, but just like a different, you know, situation? Totally different. And exactly what I was looking for. I mean, I, I could sense with eight heads that that's what was there to be do- had if if I, you know, on the days when they left me alone. It was great, you know, <laughs> but but uh, and they weren't always just the studio, you know, there were lots of of factors there but but so you know i mean all during my years of writing i was studying directing directing you know work, going to workshops directing scenes etc so you know i knew the the pleasure of it when it was and directed some plays the pleasure of it when it was when it was working well so just really wanted to you know at least after eight heads find one opportunity to make a movie where i could maybe have that pleasure in in the context of of making a a whole film i'm sensing like a very strong vision from you and not in the way that like with just a conviction right like i mean when you're up against the hollywood bullshit you're like no we're not doing this i'm curious about I mean, we could take this question a million places, but I want to go back to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids because everything we've read was that that was a drama and that you got involved and it turned into a comedy. And can you, what ha- What was the twist of of fate that happened there? Disney or, or Touchstone had bought Dead Poets Society and maybe eight months into it, I was saying, and I had sold another script the same day, Dead Poets Society. So, 
something called Love at Second Sight that was a comedy. And I was bugging my agent going, I need work. I mean, I can't live off of what these scripts, you know, I, I, let's let's get my career going. Because I, you know, finally he, I think he hectored Disney and they said, okay, we've got this project. We just fired everybody, the writers, the producer, the director, everybody. And we have one week to, to Rick Moranis is committed to star, but, but he said he doesn't want to do it unless it's, it's funny and it was supposed to be funny. It's not funny. So who you got? So my agent called me and said, I read the script. I've said, yes, you're doing it. And I said, <laughs> what? So he sent me the script. I, I said, I, what? No, I can't. I mean, it's boring. I can't. I'm, no, I'm not doing this. He said, no, I've said, yes, you're committed. You're showing up at a meeting at the studio tomorrow and you're going to do this rewrite. And tomorrow's Thursday and a week from Saturday, this script, your script is going to go in a pouch from L.A. to New York to Rick Moranis. And if he says yes, they're starting shooting on that following Monday. And if he says no, then then they're bagging the movie. So and they're only and then they're only going to pay you this ridiculously low sum of money to do it. I said, oh, my God, I've got to this. This is a total rewrite. He goes, so do it. So, you know, I went to the studio where they showed me the storyboards that they had and so forth. And then I just I said, I've got to take till Monday to figure out figure this thing out you know i remembered that when i brought i broke my leg my senior year in high school and i the doctor came and told me that i was going to be in the hospital for about six months and i remember saying to him i think i was drugged because i was in pain does that mean i don't get to go on this hayride with my girlfriend this saturday night and they all laughed and i thought that's the essence of this movie you know these kids get shrunk <laughs> But they're just worried about their lives. You know, they're not going to get all freaked out about being small. It's like, let's get back to our lives, please. So that <laughs> gave me the comic impetus. For the movie, and that was the sort of organizing principle around which I, I rewrote it. And, you know, it was, I mean, I, I the studio just nagged me, said, please start Saturday, Sunday. I said, no, I'm going to start Monday. And that gave me basically five days to, to rewrite the script. So I rewrote the whole thing in two days, turned it in. They read it two hours later, gave me notes, did another rewrite. Next day, the same thing. Friday, the same thing. Saturday, we got together and made like two dialogue changes. Then it went to a pouch to Moranis. Moranis, and I went to bed. Moranis, I didn't even know him. He called me Sunday midday and said, I'm in. Great job. <laughs> and I went, oh, I'd, I'd forgotten all about him. You know, it was just like, I was so tired. I didn't even remember that he was going to get the... But that's that's how it happened, you know. So team before me was had was had, had decided to do all the special effects sort of analog. The B ride was going to be a, a man in a B suit. The ant was going to be a man. And so the studio had said to them, "We're uncomfortable with this. Shoot a test." And they shot a test, and the studio fired them all. They said, "This can't work. <laughs> this this <laughs> is it." So uh, they fired the writing team, the director, everybody. So that's right. how a whole new team with Joe Johnston, first time director, you know, a model maker at, at, at ILM brought in to direct this, this movie. It was, you know. Wow. That's yeah. so crazy. Yeah. Can, can you talk about like what 
was in the f- the original draft that you kept like like were there any like sequences or pieces like the cheerios bit or like the grass like any of that stuff or was it all new the, you know the the rides themselves like we knew there was going to be a b ride we knew there was going to be a, a, an ant i don't actually know if the yeah there was going to be a scorpion fighting an ant the question is really how is that dramatically going to fit into this story you know each each of these incidents has to have an effect on at least one of the characters in the story. So, you know, that that became, and it was, you know, people have told me that writing porn is sort of like, you know, dialogue, dialogue, and then you do this kind of scene and dialogue. <laughs> that's kind of what this, this became for me, you know. So, you know, we invented all the, the I mean, basically, you know, in the original script, the, the kids are running or are in the grass in the backyard and the parents are just walking around the backyard. It's like, well, wait a minute, that's not going to work. They're going to squash the kids, you know, step on the kids. So we got to find a way to suspend the the the, the, the <laughs> above the yard. So let's get the TV and a and a you know something something out of the garage and this contraption. Wayne, the father, is you know a kind of mad scientist inventor type. He invented this shrinking machine, so he's going to come up with all kinds of ways to sort of make this happen. Binoculars turned upside down for looking, you know, whatever, you know. So it was just that kind of all came organically from the original concept, but who the characters were, you know, I, I don't want to denigrate the original script because, but I, it just, it seemed flat. It was full of dialogue. Hey, over there and look there, you know, and aunt, look, you know, very generic stuff. And which probably came from, I mean, on the last three versions of the script, the prior writer had written things like, please last draft. Oh my God, let this be the last draft. <laughs> he was just, they were just torturing him. <laughs> no, you know, so I had, you know, I, I felt, I always, I don't like the notion of rewriting people, but it felt like, you know, he really wanted out. So, <laughs> but a lot of it's kind of simple. It's like at one point the the family is in the room where the, the kids were shrunk and the neighbors are there and Wayne, the, 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 the father is saying, they're saying, well, what do you, you, you mean you could have blown them up? And in the script that he would say, well, if I blew them up, dot, dot, dot. So what you do when you're writing a comedy is you have him go, well, if, if I blew them up, there'd be pieces of them all over the wall. <laughs> you know? So people are going, no, don't say that. You know, it just, it, you just exaggerate. So it had the, the, the bones for, for what it became. It just needed to go further, I guess. And, and yeah. 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 Wow. So then just, sorry, Liz, <laughs> after that, did, did that kind of open the door for better writing gigs after the success of that movie or was that not really a big deal? Not a big deal. It was somewhere in the middle, you know, right after that, I, I got what about Bob to write Dead Poet Society was already kind of in process. You know, I, the, because I'd sold two scripts in one day, you know, Hollywood sort of looked up and went, oh, what's that? You know, so you, you start getting noticed, you get meetings and stuff like that. So it was good for me, you know, to know I could do it that quickly and to also just, you know, get the practice. I was proud of the rewrite when it was done. So, you know, anytime you kind of have to go in under those circumstances, it, it can feel, you know, can feel good. I love that there's this happy ending to the story. It's not an ending. You know, it's like a mid-career, like happy, I don't know screenwriting terms. It's like, uh, very exciting in that you're working independently and you have creative control and you're working outside of this movie by committee system that I think you were trapped in for a few years. 
Is your goal now to keep on making films outside of the traditional Hollywood system or is it to go back and be like, fuck you, this is what you were missing? Like, I want to conquer this now, too. I mean, to me, the Hollywood system really only means distribution, mm. you know, and, and do I, you know, for this movie or any movie or TV show, I want, you know, people to see it. So the, the answer is I'll do it under any circumstances, but I'm not going to give up the control. And I, and I think one of the strange things that happened to me is that before I started even sell, selling scripts or before Dead Poets got I was very hard headed. I would fight all the fights because when a bad idea would come, I would just go, no, that's a bad, you know, and we'd <laughs> talk about it. Or, or if a good idea came, I would say, great idea. You know, you, if you hear a good idea and you want to put it in, you do. But somehow afterwards, I got a, a little less. You just, you know, you're forced to compromise. And, you know, by the way, Disney was not a committee place back in the in the 80s and 90s. It was all Jeff Katzenberg. He was just, lots of people would read it. He was the only person that mattered. He ran the studio, and, which was great because he read everything you wrote the day you wrote it. And he would call you at six in the morning and you'd just have it out. And and that was that was a good thing, you know, because then you're talking to the one voice. decision maker. Yeah, yeah. You're not getting, whereas other studios I've worked for, no executive had that kind of presence in mind and strength of of conviction. You know, if a, if a committee, if a, the executive loved it and a committee of note, note givers came and offered 25 notes, he would say, eh, go off and talk to them, see what see what comes up because they didn't have the confidence. Jeffrey had the confidence to do it his way. Yeah, yeah. Great to work for. I was just curious. <laughs> Why 6 a.m.? Why why are you getting calls at 5.30 a.m. for your agent? Why are you talking to Katzenberg at 6 a.m.? What's up with this? Well, Katzenberg was notorious for, you know, apparently he people said he would arrive at the studio at 6 a.m. and he would put his hand on the hoods of the cars of the other executives to see how, how long they'd been there. And if the car was still warm, that means they just got there. And if it was cold, they either spent the night there, which would be great, or, you know, they would been there an hour or two. So, you know, wow. it, Disney, Disney was, you know, you're working for the mouse. We, they called it Mauschwitz. You know, it was, it was, <laughs> it was. never heard that before. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it, it ate a lot of people alive, but, but I like, I like writing. Uh, you know, I can write for 20 hours a day. No problem. So it could back then, not so much anymore, but, but, uh, so it didn't bother me to, you know, be in there at six in the morning and, or Jeffrey calling me at six. I, you know, that would be an hour or two before my kids, all hell would break loose at the house. I could get up at four and write until, until the kids got up, you know, and have some peace and quiet and so forth. So it was that that was fun. But Jeffrey was that was his thing. He'd call you at six. You know, I called him at four thirty in the morning once, you know, and wasn't even like didn't even think about it. Like somebody said, you're going to call him now? I said, yeah. And I was just like, what's up? You know, he just answers the phone like nothing's nothing's wrong. You know? <laughs> so, uh, I remember because uh, on the day before Honey, I Shrunk the Kid, before we sent it to to, to Moranis, the producers, myself, Jeffrey called us all and said, we got to, because I turned in the script on Friday, they said it's approved and ready to go. And then at six o'clock in the morning on Saturday, I get a call from him. You got to be at my house at 10. We got a problem. I'm like, what? So I go over there and the producers are all there and Jeffrey's, we put their copies of the script and we, he says, open your scripts to page 85, 85. Yeah. That line in the middle, blah, blah, blah. I don't like that line. What a, I said, what about this? He went, okay, done. Close the script. Let's have breakfast. 
And I remember <laughs> standing at the kitchen uh, at the in the living room looking out. And one of the producers said to me, you know, I was supposed to go have a brunch with some of the people at Columbia. And I told them that I had to be here this morning. And he said, they said to me, we're never going to beat those Disney guys because they just worked harder than anybody else. You know, <laughs> and so, I mean, we had to have this crazy meeting over one line of dialogue. So, and it, like, what about, thank God for Zoom, like yeah. how much yeah. better it would yeah. have been. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it was, that was the work ethic there. And those guys, you know. Whatever you think of them, they worked their asses off and worked everybody else's asses off, too. (laughs) I think we need to move to the hippy-dippy section. (laughs) Um, What's the first film you made, either as a writer, as a director, or whatever, however you want to interpret that, and how do you feel about it now? As a writer, the first thing I made was something called Sins of the Father. Its original title was Rampage, and I didn't feel good about it then, and I don't feel good about it now. (laughs) (laughs) What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Mm. Well, I think it's it's trust your gut. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received? <laughs> Probably the same. <laughs> the worst is can't you just you know pick your pick your battles? That would be the worst advice mm. because. Mm. It, it implies that you need to compromise in places where you know wrong ideas are coming, but you're gonna, you're just gonna decide I'll live with some mistakes and, and try to win the big battles. And that, that's a, that is an advice that comes out of fear, which is often justified because if you fight too much, you get fired. But, you know, somebody's got to stand up for, for what's right in a project. So if it's not somebody else, it's got to be you. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Just, just to make, I guess, you know, to make movies that, that, that make people happy. I mean, I know that sounds, it just feels like and I, that doesn't necessarily mean comedies. It just, you know, so that people get a, a sense of walk away with something beyond just the experience of, of the movie, but they come away with something that's, it, it just sounds pretentious, but somehow life changing. That's what I look for in movies that I, that I appreciate, you know? So I guess that's my hope for the movies I make. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you'd give yourself? Mm, wow. Probably don't grind on some projects for so long, you know, get feel when you feel the thing losing air you know put it in the drawer go do something else come back to it you know i I think i had this fear that if i abandoned something it was going to go away forever and that's just not real and then last question is making movies hard hell yes (laughs) in every way possible yeah 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 it's so hard to you know to have a vision and get it up there on the screen and there's so many things that are you know conscious mistakes that people consciously make having to do with all kinds of outside influences that have nothing to do with the sort of pure vision of the, of the story, you know, externalities destroy most projects. I think Bill Goldman said it best when he was talking about the Stepford Wives, where he was saying that he met with the director and, and the, and I think Goldman wrote, yeah, he wrote the screenplay, maybe even, I don't know if it was a book or not, but the director was in his fifties and his wife was in her mid fifties and, you know, the Stepford Wives, 
wives were supposed to be these 20 to 25, 30 year old, you know, sort of perfect housewives. And the director said to Goldman, I think my wife would be good for the lead. And, the, and Goldman, what are you, you going to say? He just had to say, yeah, and I don't want to insult this director's wife uh, by saying, you know, I'm sorry, but she's kind of not, he said, good idea. End of mood. You know, that was the end of that mood. So these kinds of things happen one way or the other all the time. Hmm. Can I ask a quick bonus question? Since sure. We've- yeah, we got I'm just thinking about when to walk away. And you said, you know, you said you would tell yourself not to grind so much on a certain project and to let it go. But there were there were a few close calls that you came up against earlier on in your career. Mm-hmm. And do you I hope you don't. But do you have any sense of like, if we if I just went why this if I zigged instead of zagged, or if I stayed there one extra year, it would have happened? Or do you feel that it was just so obvious that you were that you were stuck in this rut on that project. I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but in all those cases, I was stuck in a project that, looking back on it, was clearly heading for for or going nowhere. You know, and you know, it's just in my nature to keep. And it's the same answer you had about you know scripts that I I just spent way too much time after I would get notes on a script where it was clear that it wasn't working, and I didn't really know how to fix it. But I would just bang my head against the wall and come up with 15 different ways to try to fix it, none of which worked because basically there was something fundamentally wrong with it that I knew. But I just it's like trying to build a perpetual motion machine. You just think, damn it, you know, if it just a little bit more, it would run forever and it just never would. And I stayed with things and did massive rewrites way too often. Now, I learned a lot by doing that. But just, you know, writing is like exercising a muscle. The more you do, the stronger you get. So that was good. But, you know, same with the directing stuff. I mean, I just, there were just, the signs were there and the same, and my agents would even say, boy, when I, when you tell me what, what happened today, I think maybe it's time to think about walking away. And I would just go, that's not how movies get made. You don't walk away. Somebody's got to stick with this and flog it into existence, you know, and they're going, you may be right, but this, this one doesn't feel like that's going to happen. So, you know, they could be a year ahead of me on that. So, and then they just go, told you, <laughs> No, and I become I become the client who's not making any money that year, you know, because I'm just, you know, getting breadcrumbs for the work on the movie because it's not getting made, and I'm still in there fighting the budget, fighting the casting, all that stuff, you know. But I, I you know, I know a lot of people that I know a lot of directors that have stuck in there for decades on movies, and they finally, you know, but but for me, it was too focused on I should have had five things going instead of one you know mm-hmm. that's probably the best advice is do create a lot of work a lot of projects don't nice. don't get, don't get hung up on one and then lastly what should people do if they want to see double down south how they can support you you have a twitter instagram what should people do I think at this point, well, obviously, if they want to, if they're in New York and want to come to the screening on Saturday night, we're at the Regal and Union Square at 945. That's December 3rd. After that, I, I think we'll be going to a couple other film festivals. We've got a sales agent, so it's possible that, that there's nothing to, they can do except if they see it and feel, you know, moved to do so, give us a, a, you know, a rating somewhere and talk about the movie so that, you know, it helps us with, getting it released when when that time when the time comes but right now i think we're just sort of trying to figure out what the distribution situation is going to be well and they should watch all your other work right yeah um. well, <laughs> <laughs>
Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! Ulrich, what do you remember about our chat with Tom Schulman? Oh, man. I just remember how wonderful he was in the open with all his answers to our many questions. I am, like, kicking myself that we didn't really talk more about him winning an Oscar and, like, what that was like. We talked about it a little bit. Oh, no, you're, we really but, didn't. But we didn't dive into the – like, that's the first Oscar-winning person I think we've had on the show – and we we never we didn't take the time to like really dive into like the the magnitude of that and everything. We talked about like the success of the poets and like how that led to other work and blah 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 and all yeah. that. But like we didn't really like hone in on the Oscar. That's like my, <laughs> that's my big regret is that we didn't that's get nice. more juicy tidbits from that. But yeah, no, I thought it was kind of amazing that he you know wrote all these amazing movies, directed at Eight Heads of Duffel Bag. And then, yeah, that was like 97 and it's 2023 now. And his, his second movie is just coming. Out. It just blows my mind. And it's like hearing the trajectory of like, you know, false starts and like things that he was in pre-production with and all that, like the whole journey over across that. God, what is it? It's 25 years almost basically from one movie to the other. It's like hearing about that whole thing is insane, but it's like, you know, it also is kind of in a way comforting because it's like, well, I could have a whole career and then I could make another movie when I'm in my 60s or 50s or whatever. Like, who cares? You know, so like, yes, comforting, but also scary at the same time. (laughs) Super scary. Super scary. Like, I get what you're saying, but I mean, but he seemed happier than he'd ever been. We yeah, we had that whole conversation about like false starts. And it just reminds me of like, look, I I know your film's going to get made. Like, I'm not saying this as like a real negative comment. And I feel the same way about films that I'm working on. But I have listened. I know you don't listen to the podcast, but I listen to the podcast. And I've heard all of the false starts for all of our projects. Yeah. And it is overwhelming, right? And it's like, if you base your life plan off of a Hollywood film timeline, you won't have a life. Like, <laughs> like it's not, it's not a good idea to, to prioritize these projects with all these variables that could fall apart at any moment, or they always have this carrot. It's always like, but if we just do this one thing, or we just have to get this deck, or we just have to get this budget, or we just have to get this one actor. It's like, that is a dangerous pathway, right? And I just love that. I think the lesson learned for me is creative control, smaller projects, build a career. You know, you can always work with the system, but in terms of directing to prioritize smaller projects over the bigger ones, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think also just knowing that false starts are gonna happen, Yeah, you know? Like, that's just the way it is. Like, there'll be false starts, and just have to deal with that, you know? And things won't go, and then if a movie does go, you should just be very happy and lucky that it did, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it just, I feel like, yeah, what a guy to, like, go through, you know, this have this whole career. And I mean, obviously, he seems fine, because we're asking, like, how he pays the bills, and he's like, oh, yeah, oh, writing yeah. assignments. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah. It's great. You know, Dead Poet Society, what about Bob, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Like, this guy's going to be able to get paid to write for the rest of his life. Like, he doesn't yeah. have to worry about it, you know? So, like, you didn't hear him, like, complain about, oh, like, they're just not that, you know, fulfilling or whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, well, you're making 
God knows how much money doing each one. So, yeah, lucky man. This could be framed in a way like, oh, poor him. You know what I mean? But it's like, that's, I don't feel that way at all. And I don't think he feels that way. And he doesn't. Oh, he seems super, like, you know, happy and excited that, like, he's got to make this movie. And he didn't seem bitter or upset about the time or, like, how things unfolded in his career. He feels like it just seemed like he was totally good, you know? And I mean, I guess if you had a life like that, how could you not be, you know, unless you're crazy, which I guess a lot of people are. But yeah, no, I really like this conversation. I hope people enjoy it. Well, I hope people enjoy this. Ulrich, we have a question for you for the game. The game. Okay, I'm ready. (laughs) So the game is Eric Tom sets up a blind indie film challenge. She's going to, Eric Tom's a producer. He's going to set up a scenario that I'm going to relay to Ulrich, a problem for him to solve using his indie film brain. And then we're going to hear how he solves it. So Ulrich, you are days away from shooting your next feature. It's an ice noir, meaning the entire film takes place in the snow. However, it's been an unusually warm winter and snow is scarce throughout your shooting location. I thought this was a really good question for you because I know you've shot in the snow before. So just like slight caveat there. Your producers and financiers are nervous that there won't be enough snow to cover your shots. Do you A, move the production at a huge loss and give up the big climax of the film due to these new budget cuts? B, try to use snow replacement special effects in post and hope the team can make believable snow? C, Rewrite the script and try to use the weather setting to your advantage. D. Other. What do you do? What do you do, director? What do you do? Huh. Yeah. So we did. We actually dealt with this on Red Snow. Like there was scenes where we wanted it to be more snowy where we didn't have very much snow. So we'd actually move snow from one side of the street to the other side of the street and like take snow from underneath trees that was like still, you know, like cold and not melted and then put it where we wanted it to be. We'd also like construct our shots in a way that would feature the snow in the background the most, the most. So we would get like really tight on our actor and then like try to make sure like, like, oh, like that little ridge in the back that's got some snow on it is, is featured. But yeah, I think for the most part, we didn't even really worry about it, you know, because we were like, oh, you know, like these scenes, it doesn't really matter if there's not that much snow on the ground. And we just got really lucky. Like the scenes where it did matter or did want to have like a big action sequence in the snow, it just snowed the day before. And I think it was partly planning. Like where we like saw the weather reports and we were like, okay, trying to plan it for the weather. And then partly it was just super lucky that like it just happened to dump the night before we needed it to dump. you know. And then it was like melted like two days later, but it's like we already gotten all the action sequences in the snow that we needed. So it was like perfect. So yeah, I mean, if, if you have to rewrite the, you know, move the movie for snow and then you get, you lose your climax, it's like. It seems like like a self def- like it defeats the purpose, you know. It's like what, like why would you want all the snow if you can't even have a climax in the snow, which is like the point, right? So, but why is the why is the climax so dependent on snow? I wish there was more specific about that. I don't know. That, well, that's what I'm saying. That's why I like this. I think it's C or D or whatever, like the option where you just rewrite it based off the snow that you have. Like I think that's the way you do it, you know, because yeah. like. A good story, it doesn't really matter if there's snow in the background or not, you know? Like, we kept on talking about, like, oh, it's red, called Red Snow, so we got to have some snow that we can put some blood on. And, like, <laughs> we basically, like, had that covered. And then, like, worst case scenario, like, we could have just, you know, done, like, you know, like, someone gets bit or sliced or whatever. It was a vampire movie. Then you could, like, just, like, do a cutaway where, like, blood hits the snow, you know? Yeah, and or then, you like, don't have to call it Red matter. Snow. You could call it, like... 
red cold winter without snow like you could call it like something else right yeah cold cold as ice or red red ice or or red cold or cold cold red i don't know whatever yeah it wouldn't have been a big deal but i mean i just think that you know the best laid pans right like you can't control the weather you can't control these things so like my first preference would always be to rewrite to save it and not lose budget trying to force something that like Maybe in the end isn't the most important thing about the story, you know? Like, yeah. I think, like, your story, even if it's called Snow This, Snow That, I Love the Snow, Ice Noir, or whatever, it's like, the ice part's not the most important part of the story, it's the noir part, you know? So, like, I would just rewrite it to do it. But yeah, what about you? What would you do? No, I I feel the same way. It's like, I can't think of a climax entirely dependent on snow other than, like, an avalanche. Like, if there was an avalanche... And that was really, really important. That's one thing. But if it's just the like coolness and sterileness of winter that you're going for, I think you could get it visually through like the starkness of nothing on the trees and like the sparseness of nature in the winter. I mean, there's other visuals that could imply death or rebirth or whatever it is that you're looking for. So I wouldn't move a production because just like you were saying, what if that new location doesn't get any snow? <laughs> what if that new, like, what if you move it and like it gets too warm over there? And so, yeah, it would be rewriting it. But I, I also think like, I don't know if you would need to rewrite it. It's entirely dependent on the story and maybe it completely works without snow. Right, right. I will, I will call out, you know, just in Eric's defense, like the Revenant like had this problem. And they, they moved their shoot to get the snow they needed. They went from like wherever this part and they were like in some place that like snows like every winter at this time mm-hmm. for like the last 20 years or whatever. And then that one year it like didn't. And so then they shot what they could there, I think. And then they moved over to, I think it was some part in Canada where it was like super snowy. And then they shot like the river stuff uh, where he's like in the river or whatever, you know, at the end of the movie, like in the snow, you know. And it's like for that movie, like that movie is incredible. And obviously it totally made sense to move to get the snow they needed, you know. But I would never do that. I'm also like if I was a fancier director and I had just like made Birdman, like maybe I would be like, fuck it, throw the budget. Like, but because but he did it without, you know, he didn't sacrifice anything. Like he did it without right. sacrificing. He just threw more money at the, the project, you know. Right. You would that losing this climax is such a big part of what Eric's asking for. Right. Right. So I wouldn't lose the climax to do what the Revenant did. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> he did want to say that this did happen to filmmakers Joel and Ethan Cohen, our favorites, uh, oh, when really? filming Fargo, and I guess the production had to move several times and use snow replacement special effects. I mean, yeah, if there's a world where you could just like use white blankets and, you know, like you could create practical solutions to fill in the gaps between the snow, like very pro that, especially in a wide, right? But like, yeah, it would be utterly dependent on what the climax requires. Again, I don't think you can do... If it's an avalanche, that seems like a maybe there's some really, really good looking fake avalanches where the entire thing is derived from computers. But I think you need some sort of base for a massive snow effect. But I don't know. Uh, I, I don't wrong. think so. Not these days. Wow. Need shit. Then you, you might be fucking, fine. Snow replacement effects as what Eric calls them. Snow <laughs> replacement effects. I mean, I'm working on these projects for my job right now where we're building rooms from nothing in 3D dimensional space. And they we fold our client to thinking that it was actually the real room, not That's our cool. 
digitized room. So it's like, and we're like, you know, whatever, four graphics artists, you know? So like if if four graphics artists like working on indie rates can pull it off. Yeah, you could get it. People can do anything. (laughs) You can do it. The question is, do you want it? Because there, I mean, you know, there are tells, right? Like the basic audience may not be able to tell, but like, you know, Sean, who's worked in post-production for a while, he, he like can tell immediately if something's been monkeyed with, right? As I'm sure you could too. It's like, who are you trying to fool? If you're just trying to fool uh, audience members who don't know any better, then that's that. But if you're really trying to pull a extensive effect over and fool the best, the best eyes, yeah, that's beyond me. That's beyond my expertise, for sure. Yeah. Most things are monkeyed with, though. I mean, in, in, in defined monkeyed yeah. with, quote unquote, like like a, a, a color pass that's severe, you know, dra- drastically changes the way the image looks, you know? Yeah. So, anyways, yeah, yeah. it's all fidd- fiddled and fuddled with and befuddled with. Yeah. To, to what degree, I guess, that changes from project to project. But yeah, people, let us know. What do you think of this question? What would you do? Would you move your movie at all costs to get snow and risk your climax? Or do you like how Liz and I handled it? Tell us. And you could do that by sending us that comment or another question or suggestion or topic suggestion or opinion on anything with the show. What do you, you love it? You hate it? You can tell us. You can write us all these things and many, many more that I can't even think of to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. You can be the very first person to leave us an iTunes review in 2023. I can't believe no one's taken this yet. No one has taken this spot yet. It's crazy. We're like two weeks in. Someone should like grab this, be all, all over the, the first review on, on Making Movies is Hard 2023. Mm-hmm. Also, finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Also, make sure to check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, and of course, their top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks so much to Tom Schulman for coming on the show and just being a total badass answering all our questions. Thanks for Wendy Zipes Hunter from Prana PR for setting this up in the first place. You rock, Wendy. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for just being awesome. Thanks, you all, for listening. And we'll talk to you all next week. It's, it's a, the, the title is great. It's so true, right? I mean, it's just a fact. So. Uh, I'm hoping to find somebody one day who, d- d- you know, t- shows us the way where it isn't hard. I just don't think it's going to happen. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks, that's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.